church. We will, as God's people, praise His name forever and ever. We will delight and be satisfied in Him and worship the one who is worthy. And how do we know this? How do we know who He is? We know through His Word. So let me invite you to open up God's Word with me again this morning to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 20 today. You can find our text for this morning on page 1003 of the Pew Bible. And if you're visiting with us, this is uh, where we've been uh, camping the last few weeks and really over the course of several months with uh, a couple breaks in between. But we've been studying through, we've been working through uh, this final book of God's Word, the book of Revelation. And today we come to chapter 20. We've got about four weeks or so left. We're almost uh, to the end of this portion of God's Word. And as you find your place there, as you find your place in Revelation chapter 20, um, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. John writes, he says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this morning we come before you seeking to hear from you. Lord, we need to hear from you. We are dependent upon you and we recognize this morning that your word is true, that you are trustworthy and that you are a God who speaks. Lord, give us clarity this morning. We recognize that your spirit's presence is with us as your people, as your word promises. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide and lead, direct us to the preaching of your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. Well, if you're a student of the book of Revelation, and I realize uh, most of us may not be, but I would venture to bet that we do have a few among us this morning that have really uh, jumped into this portion of God's Word and and studied Scripture, and not just this portion, but all of Scripture. But if if that is you, then you have probably been anticipating what is the pastor going to say when we come to this text. And I'll be honest, uh, until this week, I didn't know what I was going to say, but depended upon the Lord and am trusting the Lord to share his word this morning. Without a doubt, this text in the book of Revelation is the most uh, hotly debated book or portion of this book of God's word. And so here, as we read it this morning, as we seek to discern some truths from it that God has for us, we have a reminder, I think, of the complexity of Scripture when it comes to secondary, certain secondary and tertiary 
issues and subjects, meaning this, that we ought to approach God and His Word with great humility and with awe. And we ought to approach fellow believers who readily agree on the central teachings of the Gospel and the central and clear teachings of God's Word with great charity when it comes to other issues. Now that doesn't mean that non-essentials are unimportant. They are. But here is a text that has been debated for some 1900 years of church history. And I can promise you we are not going to solve the debate this morning. But that being said, I I do want to give you sort of a 90 second overview of the debate itself. What is this debate you speak of? What is the conversation that is had in certain circles? This overview of the debate. Then I want to share my opinion briefly. And then I want to let the central and clear principles of God's Word speak to us. I want to lean heavily on what is clear from God's Word. Well, perhaps you've heard of different uh, millennial views, i.e. premillennialism, postmillennialism, and all-millennialism. Well, this Revelation text is where those differing perspectives arise. Uh, the word millennium refers to the thousand years that's mentioned in this passage numerous times. And so the question becomes for readers of God's word, for interpreters of the Bible, for teachers and preachers of God's word, uh, when is it and what is it? And is it a literal thousand years or does the number 1,000 represent God's perfect time? Like when he says in the Psalms, uh, every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now we've already seen, I think, as we've looked at Revelation, that at least some of the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. For example, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the sevenfold uh, Spirit of God or the seven spirits of God that surround the throne a reference to the fullness of God's Spirit around the throne of Jesus Christ. Well, premillennialists, that would be one camp, and I apologize, this is going to be a little bit technical for just a couple minutes this morning, then we're going to move on past this stuff. But premillennialists, as the name suggests, uh, believe Jesus will return before a future thousand-year reign on earth where Christ's kingdom of peace and righteousness will be established here on earth. So they read these verses as being entirely in the future, after the present church age and a period of tribulation. And folks like Charles Spurgeon and John MacArthur hold this perspective. And I'm willing to venture, because of the time in which we live in church history uh, and the tradition that most of us have been in, this is probably the perspective most of us have been taught. But another perspective would be post-millennialism. Post-millennialists, as the name suggests, believe Jesus will return after this thousand years and that during this millennium, conditions here on earth will gradually improve as the gospel spreads before Christ returns. In other words, the world is shifting into this millennial kingdom of Christ on earth as the gospel spreads. Folks like John Wesley, Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards held this perspective. And then another camp, uh, all millennialists don't believe in a future millennial reign, but believe that the thousand-year period of Revelation chapter 20 is another description of the present church age, that is the time between the first coming of, of Christ and His crucifixion on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, and His second coming or His return, where Christ is now reigning in the hearts of His people and where Satan's power is limited. Folks, 
in church history like Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther held this perspective. And so all that to say, I want to pause this morning and be clear on this. You are in good company in any of these camps. You can dis- I don't say this very often. You can disagree with your pastor's interpretation on that particular issue uh, as long as you do so on the grounds of God's word. We can hold differing perspectives on the millennium and still grow together and thrive as followers of Jesus Christ within a local church family. In other words, how we understand the millennium is most definitely secondary to the gospel itself. But at present, I'm going to share with you, I identify most fully with the position known as amillennialism, and here's why. I see great similarity between Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 12, with both of them portraying the defeat of Satan through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Christ's coming, his living, his dying, and his rising. Satan has been bound, he's been conquered, he's been defeated. Let me give you a few texts to support that claim. Remember in Jesus' ministry, Jesus sent out uh, some of his followers two by two to evangelize the lost and to perform miracles. And they came back to Jesus and they were absolutely amazed at the power that he had given them over demons. Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, I have given you, my people, authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In his letter to the church in Colossae in the first century, the Apostle Paul reflects on Jesus' victory on the cross. And he says, in having disarmed the powers and authorities, speaking of spiritual powers and authorities, having disarmed these powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Elsewhere, John, the author of Revelation, acknowledges the presence of false prophets and spirits in the world. And he says to us, he says to his listeners, he says to his readers, he says to the church in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so I read at present, like I said, this could change. This is debatable. I read Revelation 20, 1, 2, and 3, the chaining and the confining of Satan that we read here uh, to be describing heaven's current perspective of things on earth. And then verses 4, 5, and 6 providing a picture of what is presently going on in heaven. And you may say, you may react to that, wait a minute, Satan is not bound He's alive, he's active, he's at work, he's deceiving, he's tempting, and he's tormenting people all across the earth today. Isn't that what we've been reading and seeing throughout Revelation, to which I would respond, yes. But his power is partial. His power is limited. His power is broken by the power of the gospel, and the church is free to make disciples of all nations, not without opposition, And not without hardship, but with the guarantee of victory in Jesus Christ. Church, Christ and his followers will prove victorious over sin, death, and Satan. There's no doubt about it. Christ and his followers will prove victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And let me just pause and reiterate this this morning. My perspective is going to come out this morning. I can't help that. You can't work through a text like this in our day with the history that it has without... That opinion coming through. But the theological truths 
And the application points that I'm sharing with you this morning are not dependent upon any particular millennial perspective. And so don't check out on me if I disagree with your favorite Bible teacher. The main things, even here, are the plain things. And the main thing portrayed here is that Christ and his followers will prove victorious over sin, death, and Satan. We know this, for God's word is crystal clear on this. The point of these six verses, I think, is to declare and to demonstrate the triumph of God's people. The light of the gospel outshines the darkness of the devil. We have victory in Jesus because God reigns supreme over Satan. God reigns supreme over Satan. This we know for the Bible again and again and again and again tells us so. You may know from reading God's word that one of the Bible's names for God is Lord of Armies. Or Lord of Hosts, depending on what translation you're reading. A title that's used some 267 times in the Old Testament for God. A title that appears in David's account with Goliath. And remember David, the young shepherd boy, comes and he sees Goliath, the uh, Philistine giant, taunting the army of Israel and all uh, uh, of Israel's army. All of their soldiers are, are afraid. That none of them want to go before Goliath. And, and David says, I'll do it. And David steps up and he says to uh, Goliath, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. A translation, uh, uh, God Almighty or Lord Almighty in this text. That's not El Shaddai, the popular uh, Hebrew phrase or title for, uh, for, for Lord Almighty in the Old Testament. This is the phrase that is translated Lord of armies or Lord of hosts. Implying that God has all the armies of heaven and of earth at his disposal to be used for his purposes. They are in his possession and when he desires to do so, he may use them for his purposes. But notice that here in Revelation 20, he doesn't even need a single army. No mention of an army here. He sends an angel. He sends an angel to capture and bind Satan. Satan is no match for God. God binds the devil because the devil aims to lead all to join him in opposing Jesus. The devil aims to lead all to join him in opposing Jesus. Verse 3, the angel threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from what? From deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. In other words... Deceiving the nations into uniting together in a global assault against Jesus and his church is what God is not allowing Satan to do. Think of a defensive blitz on the quarterback in football. A united attempt to confront, to to assault the quarterback, to take the quarterback down. Maybe think of a, a, a big rally, a march. Maybe on... D.C. or elsewhere, some of these popular marches where people are gathered and and encouraged to be part of something big, to be part of a statement, to make a stand for something right or against something wrong. Likewise, Satan himself is striving to lead all to join him in opposing Jesus. He uses whatever means available and necessary. He'll use the lure of political power represented by the beast in Revelation. He'll use the lure of pleasure and treasure represented by the prostitute in Revelation to deceive the nations into thinking that Jesus and his gospel are the enemy. 
He appeals to our proclivity to sin through whatever means possible, through propaganda, through political promises, through the lure of pleasure. He's a deceiver and he's a liar. We learn this again and again and again in God's word. We see it in the early pages of scripture. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, at every single opportunity, he twists the truth. His dishonesty contrasts sharply in the Bible with the one who is the way and the truth. Our text that we looked at last week, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we see a picture of Jesus returning on a horse. And in that text, Jesus is described this way. John says in verse 11, he says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called what? Faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. John introduces his gospel to us in this way. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus prayed to the Father for His disciples, for His followers, for the church, saying, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Friends, Christ Jesus is true. He is true. And the devil is a liar who aims to lead all to join him in opposing Jesus. But because God is supreme over Satan, the devil has limited power and can only operate with God's permission. The devil has limited power and can only operate with God's permission. Anybody ever enjoyed riding go-karts before? Got a few folks that have been on a go-kart here. I bet a few more have that. Don't admit it this morning, but I remember riding go-karts a few times as a child. And I remember, I think, even once or twice as an adult, maybe last summer, big family vacation, we had opportunity to ride uh, go-karts. And even as a father of three, I remember getting in that car and that little competitive street coming out as if somehow riding go-karts on a defined track is a competition. It felt like it was. But you are reminded when you're on a go-kart, no matter how hard you push that pedal down, you can only go so fast. No matter how hard you try to get around someone, uh, you can't get off the track. There are bumper rails and guards in place to confine you to a certain point. In fact, even many places when, when it's time to circle back around and park the car, you, you can only go a couple miles an hour. They somehow control your speed and reduce it as you're coming in to land. Limited power within an operable place under the permission of those overseeing it. This is what the devil tries to do. He is only able to operate with limited power and under God's permission. Remember the story of Job, which illustrates this truth beautifully. Remember, Job is a righteous man who loves the Lord, serves the Lord, honors God. He's also a man of great health and wealth of his own day. As the story goes, Satan appears before God one day and God says to Satan, Satan, have you considered Job? There's no one like him. He is upright and righteous. He loves me and he serves me. And Satan responds to God and says, Job only loves and serves you because you have given him everything. God, take it away and he'll curse you. And so God gives 
Satan limited power and permission to inflict hardship on Job for a season. And Job proves his faith and his faithfulness. Apart from God's permission, Satan has no power. Upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On another occasion, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, no matter how hard Satan desires to squash the church and oppose the gospel, he cannot. He cannot stop the gospel. He is alive and he is active, but he is limited. He is crafty and he is coercive, but his influence is curtailed. God reigns supreme over Satan, and because he does, those who bear the name of Jesus will experience victory over Satan. Those who bear the name of Jesus will experience victory over Satan. We see this. Verse 4, John writes, he says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. You see, once again, in the, uh, the greater context of the book of Revelation, John interrupts a vision of judgment. That's where we were last week at the end of chapter 19, a vision of judgment and destruction The false prophet and the beast being banished into the lake of fire. A vision of judgment at the return, the second coming of Christ, with an interlude of redemption, reminding his readers that even in the midst of this, the church is secure. God's people are saved. Final judgment is delayed once again as a sign of God's mercy. And so Revelation chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6 recount the life and the rule of those who bear the name of Jesus, of those who have trusted in Jesus and proved their faith in Him by remaining faithful to Him, even unto death. Another portrait here, another graphic portrait, the martyred church, implying, yes, that, that many Christians have literally lost their lives for identifying with and worshiping Jesus. In fact, more lost their lives as Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all the centuries before. That many have literally lost their lives for identifying with and worshiping Jesus, and yet all of us are called to lose our lives in Jesus, to be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. To submit to Christ as Lord going wherever He leads us, faithfully witnessing to the world by our words and our deeds until we die or until Christ comes again. And even if we die, I think John is saying, even if we die as at the hands of the enemy, victory remains for those who refuse to worship the beast, for those who remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Those who bear the name of Jesus will experience a victory over Satan, enjoying resurrection. Enjoying resurrection, new life forever and ever and ever. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, he says. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. I think John is describing those who are in heaven now. 
but who, like the rest of us, await the return of Jesus and the final defeat of Satan, but who, unlike the rest of us, have already begun to enjoy eternity with Jesus, alive and thriving and whole in His presence. But that being said, even if you hold that deceased Christians await this first resurrection, the truth is the same. Those who bear the name of Jesus will experience victory over Satan, enjoying resurrection and sharing in Christ's reign. Sharing in Christ's reign. Verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. You see, a central theme throughout the Bible, throughout the Scriptures, throughout God's Word is that God's people share in His reign as a kingdom of priests. We see this in relation to Israel in the Old Testament. We see it in relation to God's people, the church in the New Testament, followers of Jesus. I'm not entirely sure what this looks like. But we will definitely be on the winning side, church, enjoying victory in Jesus, serving the King of kings and representing the Most High God and living and ruling with Jesus in triumph over the devil and the people and the powers of this world who oppose the kingdom of Jesus Christ. John's point is to promote the certainty, the absolute certainty of true life and victory for those who are in Jesus Christ. You see, though Satan strives to lead us to believe that worldly pleasure and power and treasure are what satisfy, his game plan is one of deception and defeat. So resist the lies of the devil. We must resist the lies of the devil. Resist the lies of the devil. We must balance the devil's certain defeat and his constant deception. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion lion looking for someone to devour. On the prowl, yet bound for hell. The devil says things like, let the poor take care of themselves. You care for you. The devil says things like, live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. The devil says uh, things like God's word is unreliable and outdated. Decide for yourself what is right and true. The devil says find pleasure wherever you can for without it life is meaningless. The devil says God does not love you or care for you. You are not good enough for him so you might as well give up. Friends, the devil twists the truth in order to deceive us into rejecting Jesus and living for sin and self headed down the road to hell described here in God's word as the second death. But blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. For Christ and his followers will prove victorious over sin, death, and Satan. So resist the lies of the devil, but receive the promises of Jesus. We can receive the promises of Jesus, for His promises are sure. For Christ is the true and righteous one. He is the victorious King who reigns supreme forever and ever. He is the giver of life and the Lord of lords, the one who gives victory to His followers by breaking the chains of sin and death and the lies of the devil, the one who warned us, but who also welcomed us to receive true and eternal life in Him. The one who said the thief comes 
to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friend, do you have life to the full? Do you have abundant life? Do you have forgiveness of sins? Do you know the joy of salvation? Are you living for Jesus? Are you you and will you participate in the victory that is found in knowing and trusting and following Jesus Christ? You can. You can today. All of us can today. We can know this victory. We can know the joy of salvation. We can know what it means to be right with God. You can if you will turn and trust Him. Why don't you turn and trust Him today? You worship the King of Kings today. Won't you bow before the Almighty Lord and Savior, God Most High today? Won't you bow before Jesus today? Won't you serve Him? Won't you live as one of His people? Now, yes, now, but also forever. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you that that you are mighty and magnificent. And Lord, at times you are mysterious. And yet you have made yourself known to us. But you've, you've told us who you are and what you want us to know about you through your word. Through your written word, through, through the Bible, your word to us. And also through the word made flesh, through your son, our Savior. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that he is reigning on high. We thank you that he holds the world in his hands. That he will rule and reign forever and ever. And that his promises are sure that he is true and that he will come again. And he will gather all his people into his presence to enjoy you forever and ever and ever. To experience victory through Christ. Lord, may we know that victory. Father, we know that we only have a foretaste of it here. May we be a people who build our lives upon the truth of the gospel, who stand upon it and live according to it and proclaim it as ambassadors, your ambassadors, until Christ comes again. Father, help us to know this gospel and to live by it. Help us now to respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.